good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema, brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. I was listening to a podcast last week where the hosts were talking about how Rotten Tomatoes uh, ruined the 2017 box office. And, and you know, looking back, uh, I, I did find where a number of, of articles were written uh, attacking the aggregate site, basically saying that, you know, these kind of sites have have impacted box office and caused the failure of a number of films, which I'll get into in this podcast. And this week, I wanted to, to talk to all of you, especially the filmmakers that are listening. I mean, some movies are review proof. Look at Transformers for one, or even Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There are a number of films that have, that have defied critical attacks and went on to be financially successful. So is this really true or is this a cynical tactic by studios just to excuse bad product? So for this episode, I, I wanted to touch base on that. And, and especially, I'm, I'm not a big uh, promoter of, of aggregate sites in the first place. My, my opinion is you either like something or you don't. You can make up your own damn mind. And I, I do get that from fans, a number of people that come back and say, hey, listen, I, I just go by what I want to see. And, and that's how I make my decision. And you know what? Good for you. Uh, you. You don't need to be told. It's kind of like Oprah Winfrey, who has absolutely no qualification whatsoever as a literary expert, telling you thumbs up or thumbs down on, on her book list, her book club, and what she should recommend. It's just subjective. It's what Oprah likes. Now, I know that Rotten Tomatoes, for example, is, is a little bit different. They basically bring together you know professional critic consensus. And then they they make a judgment call based from there by, you know, culminating uh, the scores and giving this average. I have a link in my show notes to a New York Times article published on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, the site has been around almost, well, 20 years. I was first introduced to it back in around 2003, 2004. As the internet gained more of a foothold, Rotten Tomatoes expanded its base. And and now, according to that article that, that I have posted in my notes... Its power to influence box office performances is, you know, something regarded as fact. I mean, I have no doubt that it has influence, but can it cause a movie to crash and burn? For me, it sounds like those parents who subscribe to the uh, not my kid mentality couldn't possibly be us. It has to be the school. It has to be society and anyone but us and the bad product we made. I wrote a similar article, which which could be a companion piece uh, a few months earlier than that article, when another finger-pointing article on Rotten Tomatoes got some press. Can a website that amasses critical reviews have so much impact on a film's box office performance? Hollywood spins it both ways whenever convenient. When it comes to a franchise like Transformers, like I mentioned, the studio loves to point out that these films defy negative reviews and, and point to their massive cash hauls. Most of the Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th films received less than glowing reviews, but managed to avoid financial impact as a result. Granted, those, those films were made before the internet. However, people still listened to reviews, and, and they had their impact in a relative sense. 
let's look at The Shining real quick. I mean, people forget in 1980, The Shining did not receive glowing reviews. It's been rehabilitated over time. But financially, those reviews had little impact on the film. The film was a box office success and became more of a financial success as years went on. I mean, back then, we had a handful of reviewers dictating the culture of good and bad to us. I mean, there was Rex Reed and Siskel and Eber, Jeffrey Lyons, you know, Janet Maslin, Pauline Keel, Vincent Canby, Leonard Malton, Gene Shalit, Joel Siegel, I mean, who just pretty much seemed to love everything, and, and a handful of others. Yet the studios survived, and a healthy number of truly bad films thrived before Rotten Tomatoes came along. Audiences who consume the mediocre product coming from the studios allow more of it to be made. If they are not expecting better from their entertainment, the studios will act in kind. Studios will provide overblown, expensive, mediocre product because there is a demand. Even those who love fast food will admit there comes a time when enough is enough. You're beyond glutted. The stuff just makes you sick. So you swear off the shit for a while. You'll likely go back, but for now you want to puke. So let's look back. The, the, the summer of 2017 movie season is, is a case of overeating a lot of garbage. Superhero films are Big Macs. These films are assembly line produced and processed and slapped into their Happy Meal boxes. They are thrown out there and as a result are interchangeable. They are repackaged at any time to adjust to the consumer demand. You may not like to hear it. Superhero movies, for the most part, not all, but for the most part, are assembly line product. Look at the posters. I've mentioned this before. The posters are interchangeable. Change around some of the characters. Change around the artwork, the Photoshop artwork. It's basically the same thing. And that's okay if you like fast food. So let's just say we've reached a saturation point. Constant reboots, studio regime changes, and an audience fickleness have convoluted the efforts to build detailed cinematic universes. The Guardian, the publication The Guardian, supports my statement in another article that I'm going to supply in my show notes. And Den of Geek even noticed this issue too, with the mess brewing like a hurricane out to sea with conflicting Joker movies back in the day, which I'm also going to publish this article here in my show notes. When your cinematic universe lineup starts looking like the timeline from Back to the Future 2, there's a problem. Overall, I think Disney, you may not agree, but Disney seems to have it right. They winnowed down the Star Wars canon and disposed of the rest. Their control over the Star Wars universe is shown through the public changes of, of directors and statements of, of a vision. Whether fans are behind that vision is irrelevant. You may not like it, but Disney is in charge and, and they're letting the world know it. The Marvel world seems overloaded and they're making an attempt to keep it all straight. On, on the flip side, messes like the Spider-Man franchise show, the issues of reboots and swapping actors and a host of other things that... Sometimes I just can't keep up with it all. I mean, asking me right now, if you came up off the street and said, how many Marvel movies are there? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. And I don't know how they all connect. And I've seen on Twitter where people go, here is the proper way to watch all the Marvel movies. Number one, I'm not investing all that time into it. But number two, my God, when you start needing a roadmap to movies, what does that tell you? 
Universal stumbled out of the extended universe gate with the mummy. If you remember that, they're going to have this whole dark universe thing going. And well, that just crashed and burned with that mess of a movie that Tom Cruise was in. And social media loves posting the latest stumbles inside the DC comic universe. There is no denying a problem. But how much of it can be blamed on Rotten Tomatoes? Look, I remember when my movie Death House was going to open and it did receive a very limited theatrical release. I won't go into all of that and my displeasure over that. However, it had to fight hard for any type of expansion for for more screens and markets. It was a time when, when Rob Zombie and Eli Roth had to fight for 500 screens. So how the hell was Death House going to do anything? I mean, 40 years ago, dozens of films a year were made and even more distributed in a single year. Now a studio is lucky to make 10 pictures a year and the number of independent and smaller films has dwindled down to a handful if, if we're lucky. Christmas and summer screens are dominated by giant studio franchises and what they call tentpole films. Remakes and reboots further close this the spigot. I mean, small films are getting pushed off the big screens. Audiences have been dazzled by CGI-laden, green screen, over-the-top designer product that is all style over substance. With the advent of streaming technology, smaller pictures heavier on story and nuanced performances have, have found homes on, on the small screen and mobile platforms. Television has had a renaissance in high-quality drama and horror. Better horror is being produced for the small screen than for movie theaters. And and let's not even now bring in what COVID has done to the entire theatrical experience. And we don't even know what's going on there with that. Can a website that compiles dozens of critical reviews into a single score have a real effect on a film's performance? A better question to ask is... Is there any film that has been financially crippled by scathing critical reviews? I mean, I gotta tell you, I can't think of one. And don't hand me Heaven's Gate or even Halloween 3, as as their failures are attributed to a number of things. With bad reviews at the the very end of the list, some have offered Popeye, and, and I've done a podcast on that. But the reviews, they were mixed and they were not overwhelmingly negative and the film was not a financial failure. See my previous podcast called Popeye Stands Alone. And I'll, I'll bring up another one, the critically reviled Jaws 3D. And I've done a podcast on that. It was my third podcast for cinema. That movie was making great money when it was pulled from its theatrical run at the end of the 1983 summer season. The Transformers franchise overcame almost uniformly bad reviews, and Batman vs. Superman was almost bulletproof to fan and critical hatred. Even Jaws the Revenge, the movie that inspired this entire podcast and widely regarded, especially by me, as one of the worst, if not by me, the worst motion picture ever made, turned a profit. And there was no intention to aim high with Jaws the Revenge. If you don't believe me, go back and listen to episode two. So you're going to get people going, well, that was 30 years ago. The internet changed everything. So let's get a little more current and see if that argument really holds water. I am not taking into account the dubious data that Rotten Tomatoes is owned by Fandango, Universal, and until recently, Warner Brothers. 
each insists Rotten Tomatoes operates independently, and maybe it does. However, the studios cry foul over the fact that national and local coverage incorporates the tomato meter into their broadcasts and individual reviews. Rotten Tomatoes is omnipresent, ubiquitous, and therefore has a monopoly over critical reviews. If it doesn't gel, it is an aspic, and this isn't gelling. That's what Martin Balsam told Norman Bates in 1960's Psycho. That adage applies to studio complaints about Rotten Tomatoes. And look, I've cited Occam's Razor in my Making a Murderer podcast, and I'm invoking it here because Occam's Razor says the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. So for me, it's all pretty simple. And the simplest answer to studio complaints from me is just go make better movies and then you don't have anything to worry about. Is it really that Rotten Tomatoes or other aggregate sites can sink a movie? I don't think so. I think a lot of it is just simply from people getting sick of just really mediocre and bad stuff. So let's look at the box office of 2017. The 2017 summer box office was a bomb because the studio product was mediocre at best. Superhero fatigue, remake disdain, sequel fatigue, and a tiring of franchises left audiences asking for something more, something fresh. The industry was looking to Stephen King's Pennywise Clown to salvage the fall of 2017, and it did. But the second part didn't do so much. I mean, financially, the second part was a success, but don't even get me started on that. Make better movies and people will come to see them. Give a variety. Stop remaking beloved classic films, you know, like Ghostbusters. In fact, I've always argued, remake the shitty ones. Go back and and fix the bad ones. Somebody go back and fix Jaws 3 and totally forget Jaws 4. Somebody go back and fix that and remake that. Do something original. Take a chance and release more independent and smaller product. Stop rebooting and remaking franchises that are sequels, but really aren't. And I'm looking at you, Jurassic World. So let's keep looking at this. Here are some of the pronounced failures from 2017's box office. So let's take a look and and I'd love to hear what you think. So we'll go into Ghost in the Shell. Remember that? The tomato meter rated it as rotten. I believe it was a a 44%, although 53% of the audience liked it. My assessment for cinema, does it really count as a summer film? Did it? They were opening blockbusters earlier for a reason. The films are seen as weak, without legs to withstand a strong summer lineup. Batman vs. Superman tried this with success, if you remember, with a record-breaking March opening weekend. Fans were pissed off with the whitewashing of Scarlett Johansson and Ghost in the Shell, but this was a flat, style-over-substance translation that just came and went. On top of it all, was anyone really asking for it? Keep with Black Widow. Let's go on to that really bad King Arthur movie, The the Legend of the Sword. I mean, does a subtitle really matter? Was anyone asking for yet another King Arthur movie? I mean, I guess they figured, well, Game of Thrones is doing well. Let's get some type of medieval thing going. Aside from Excalibur, which I'm going to get pummeled for this, that I still to this day find excruciatingly dull. 
Um, no one was even looking for a King Arthur movie. So did we need another dry, overproduced version of the King Arthur legend? Like I said, aside from Excalibur, none of this has ever performed well at the box office. I mean, like I said, I think Excalibur is incredibly boring. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad movie, but it's well done. But my God, did I find it boring. So why did anyone think that this big budget project back then that no one was asking for was going to do well? With a summer lineup at that time of Wonder Woman and Spider-Man, why would an executive think, yeah, yeah, King Arthur is what people want to spend 10 bucks on. No one asked for this. And subsequently, no one cared. This had nothing to do with Rotten Tomatoes. Alien Covenant was another one that that pointed the finger at at Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, it was barely assessed as fresh on, on their site. So you have another installment of of more monsters chasing people. And it was Ridley Scott's return to the series that I really think fans hoped for more, a lot more. Prometheus was convoluted. It was heavy on the dogma and, and light in the wonder factor, but it was still an interesting start to a prequel adventure. Covenant tosses out an important character, Alien 3 style, with Dr. Shaw. And, and it puts the entire show on Michael Fassbender. I mean, we got beautiful sets and high production value, but no memorable characters, scenes, or script. We do get a retread, like I said, of monster chasing people through dark spaceship to be blown out into space situations. The whole thing was too long, overhyped, and it was just plain tired. None of it comes close to the original 1979 Alien or its stellar 1986 sequel. The movie showed up and audiences yawned, but gave it a free pass because of its pedigree. But again, I don't see where Rotten Tomatoes had any type of impact on it. Johnny Depp's Keith Richards uh, impression returned with Pirates of the Caribbean 5. I can't even believe they made that many of these things. And I I never got the appeal of this whole franchise, aside from from Depp's work, I guess. And that wore thin by the second film, and and the rest has made money off silly fanboys and their geek love for the material. CGI green screens, big scope vistas, and Johnny Depp slurring for his paycheck brought him back for another round to ease his personal debts from what I understand. Just what was different about this movie than the others? I mean, the original didn't offer that much. And really, when it's based on a Disney ride, how much was there in the first place? It's amazing this got past a trilogy. So I guess, you know, kudos for that. But again... Can you really tell the difference between any of these expensive, all-flash, no-meat Disney productions? Don't blame Rotten Tomatoes. Blame mediocre filmmaking. So, of course, we go to the 16% rated The Mummy. And even only 38% of audiences cared for Tom Cruise's The Mummy back then. I don't know what the score is right now, but I'm looking at what it scored back upon its release. The old universal monsters like Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, or the Mummy, look, they're not meant to be superhero action franchises. The Marvel formula doesn't work. But someone at Universal thought it would be a good idea to reshape classic monster movies into action vehicles for the likes of someone like Tom Cruise. You can hear the pitch. Mission Impossible meets the Mummy. No one was asking for this. 
Many are still loyal to the Brendan Fraser campy films. If you're going to come out of the gate with this kind of movie, why start with The Mummy? Didn't anyone remember the remake of The Wolfman a few years earlier? Russell Crowe is wedged in as Dr. Jekyll and, you know, the head of some kind of like government ops thing. And my God, there was lots of CGI and explosions. The problem is there's no story here or more importantly, any fun. I really hope they make like a Charlie's Theron uh, atomic blonde take on The Bride of Frankenstein. Wouldn't that be great? I'm being sarcastic for anybody actually going, yeah, man, I, I would see that. Stop it. Now, this one is easy pickings. If you remember way back, you know, a couple years ago here, three years ago, the Emoji Movie, which scored a whopping 8% on the tomato meter. Really? This movie was bad enough. You really want to try to blame Rotten Tomatoes for this? Idiocracy, if you remember, let's go back to that one. I mean, because that movie was just far more accurate. It's, it's not so much a comedy as it was a predictor of future events. Idiocracy had a scene where the audiences went to the movies to see a film titled Ass. Do you remember that? It was just the word ass on the marquee. And it was 90 minutes of this big, fat, white, pasty ass farting. It was a bare ass on the screen farting. And people in the theater are laughing like crazy. Well, the Emoji Movie is, is kind of the precursor to this. If you fail to see why this movie deserves its scathing rating, yet still made some money, then you are part of the problem. People came to see it. Money passed through the windows. Concessions were sold. This type of product defines why Hollywood gets exactly what it deserves. Don't blame Rotten Tomatoes for this. I've always been a firm believer that Ron Howard is a gifted filmmaker, but makes his best movies on lower budgets. Give Ron Howard tens of millions of dollars, in my opinion, it's a lot of overbloated stuff, and, and it's hit or miss. I was never a fan of Willow, and I can go on. His Dark Tower, if you remember back in 2017, was almost a blueprint on how to F up a franchise right away. I mean, that came right out of the gate sinking. It was like the Titanic of movie franchises. Four screenwriters it took to write a 16% rated tomato meter. Stephen King handled an entire book series all on his own while cranking out bestsellers in between. Sony's desire for a new franchise by mashing up action, Game of Thrones, and Star Wars translated to a shitty tomato meter and likely dashed chances for a sequel. That film was a mess. And there is a long story behind this project as it was in development for decades. The wrong people got their hands on it. The wrong people wrote it, the wrong people got the rights to it, and the wrong guy directed it. The bottom line is no one knew what to do with King's detailed saga and went the safe route with a truncated 90-minute version. No regard for the novelist, no regard for the actual material, and no regard for the audience. The result? The audience didn't show any regard as well. Get ready for another reboot of this as Hollywood is now going to try, from what I understand, it's still alive, another do-over of this. They're going to do a do-over of The Dark Tower because they screwed it up so royally the first time. How is Rotten Tomatoes to blame for this? That movie was an absolute mess. So, just citing these films 
Did Rotten Tomatoes ruin the 2017 summer box office? Or were the studios right in saying, not my kid? Sometimes the simplest answer is the one. And sometimes your kid's an asshole. This is Harrison Smith. Thanks for listening. I hope you and yours are safe and sound. Thank you. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.